The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President Trump signs an executive order on police reform. We check in with House Majority Whip James Clyburn for the Democratic response. And Fed Chair Jay Powell sounding the alarm bells of a slow Nike swoosh recovery. Why do Republicans disagree? All of that. Plus, we head for geopolitics. New tensions rising between India and China. A jam-packed day of news. First, let's get a check of the headlines from my good friend, Nancy Lyons. Nancy? President Trump is taking action on police reform, signing an executive order in the Rose Garden today that calls for better training on the use of force. He says chokeholds will be banned nationwide, except when the officer's life is at risk. We're looking at new advanced and powerful, less lethal weapons to help prevent deadly Interactions. Trump strongly denounced efforts, though, to defund police departments, saying that would be chaos. Senior administration officials say departments that implement reforms will be rewarded with federal grants. Researchers in England say they have the first evidence a drug can improve survival from COVID-19. A steroid called dexamethasone reduced deaths up to one-third in severely ill hospitalized patients. The study was led by the University of Oxford and involved thousands of patients randomly assigned to get the drug or a placebo. Dexamethasone reduced deaths by 35 percent in patients who needed treatment with breathing machines by 20 percent in those who needed supplemental oxygen. It showed very little effect, however, on less ill patients. The D.C. statehood movement has reached a watershed moment. The Democrat-led House will vote on a bill making the district the 51st state. Democrats are trying to capitalize on the uproar caused by the Trump administration's heavy-handed treatment of street protests near the White House. House leaders held a news conference with Mayor Muriel Bowser, who explained why the district should be made a state. There shouldn't be troops from other states in Washington, D.C. There shouldn't be federal forces advancing against Americans. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer opposed D.C. statehood until last year, but now he's scheduling a vote in the House on June 26th. 
The statehood movement has no Republican support in the Senate. Martin DeCaro, Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 HD2. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam says... State executive branch workers will now observe June 19th or Juneteenth as a state holiday beginning this Friday. Juneteenth is the day that's been celebrated as the end of slavery in the U.S. We are changing what we honor in Virginia. Northam says it's time to start the process of reparations in a state that was once home to the capital of the Confederacy. Singer Pharrell Williams, a native of the state, was on hand for today's announcement. He applauded the move and the movement he's seen over the past few weeks. This new generation is speaking up and staring down. They are staring down systemic racism with so much bravery, and it's super inspiring. Juneteenth will now be a paid holiday for, as I said, executive branch employees. Northam is moving to make it a paid state holiday for all employees in the state. And the city of Richmond is in need of a new police chief. Today, Mayor LeVar Stoney requested and accepted the resignation of Police Chief William Smith. After two nights of tense demonstrations, officers used chemical gas, flashbangs and rubber bullets on the crowd. Stoney says the city needs a new approach to public safety. It's time now for the Beltway Business Report. Here is Bloomberg's Tracy Jonke. Nancy, a record retail sales rebound in May did a lot for investor confidence. Today, the Dow up 527 points at 26,290. The Nasdaq up 170 points at 98.95. The S&P's up 58 points. We have never seen anything like the 17.7% jump in May retail sales. Every type of retailer improved on April's numbers, according to the Commerce Department. AT&T says one thing it has learned from lockdowns is it doesn't need as many stores. 250 stores will be closed as part of AT&T's $6 billion cost-cutting plan. AT&T's main employee union says the company is cutting nearly 5,000 jobs, including more than 1,000 in retail. And TechCrunch says T-Mobile is eliminating hundreds of jobs at Sprint. The two mobile carriers merged in April. McLean-based Hilton Worldwide is laying off more than 2,000 corporate employees while it waits for the hospitality industry to bounce back. And it is extending furloughs and pay cuts for the rest of its corporate workforce for as many as 90 days. You're up to date on business from the Beltway to Baltimore. I'm Tracy Jonke. This is Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Thanks, Tracy. Global news 24 hours a day on air and on Quick Take by Bloomberg. Powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. I'm Nancy Lyons. Back to you, Kevin. Thanks, Nance. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Let's start with some optimism. Should we start with some optimism? Stocks rose for a third day as optimism over a recovering U.S. economy overrode any concerns that the coronavirus cases are worsening in locations ranging from Texas to China. The S&P 500 climbed 1.9% with energy, healthcare, and materials leading all 11 industry sectors higher in the biggest gain in more than a week. That's according to my colleagues uh, reporting on the Bloomberg terminal. James Holman's on the line. He, of course, is a reporter for the Washington Post and the author of the all-important policy-based newsletter, The Daily 202. James, you know, there's optimism on Wall Street, but Fed Chair Jay Powell, he testified before Senate banking and he wasn't so optimistic. Yeah, Kevin, and there is still kind of a, a feeling that more will eventually need to be done. Obviously, optimism, I think you're exactly right, is the watchword right now. But there's also kind of some anxiety and nervousness about 
um, about some of these lingering reports and the numbers that are coming in and, and you know, how much can we kind of power through this and how much more help are we going to need? Yeah, you know, and it is it is really fascinating because Fed Chair Jay Powell, uh, he he said uh, earlier today via video conference before the Senate Banking Committee, quote, we would expect to see large numbers of people during this period coming back to work during this second period, call it the bounce back or the beginning of a recovery. Then we think and I think most if not all forecasters think that will leave us well short of where we were in February. What he's saying. Fed Chair Jay Powell, not to translate, but, you know, what he's saying is that the V that people had hoped for, economists are now saying could be start out as a V recovery of a dramatic uh, decline in jobs followed by a dramatic uh, comeback of jobs. And that V, that's where you get that V into a U or even a swoosh type of figure. Um, and right. so that's really a delayed, prolonged recovery. How does that a, a prolonged recovery? How does that impact the politics, not just at the presidential level, James Homan, but in the Senate and the House for elections? Well, the Senate's very much in play, Kevin. And you know, we saw the former weekend that shows the, the Republican senator in Iowa is down, and it's because people are hurting. People are going to blame. Uh, incumbency. There was another poll today that showed people are more unhappy than they've been in decades. There was a poll from Gallup yesterday that showed people are less proud to be Americans than they've been uh, in the whole time Gallup's ever asked that question. And so there, there is this feeling that the country's on the wrong track. And the more that you know, our, our polling shows that a lot of people who think that they're going to get their jobs back and are confident that their jobs are going to come back probably aren't going to see their jobs come back right away. And so that becomes a political headache in the in the coming months, and it's important for incumbents of either party, but especially Republicans, because they're defending their Senate majority and the White House to convey that they still care about those people. And obviously, you know, that you have the unemployment benefits expiring in July, the the federal extension, and so there's going to be a lot of politics played around that, and uh, and both parties are going to have to kind of convey to these voters. In, in states where there are competitive races, and that's places like, you know, North Carolina, Colorado, uh, Maine, uh, and even uh, Montana, where Democrats can pick up seats. And they're going to have to, to, Republicans are going to have to show they, even if they don't want to do another massive stimulus, that they still are trying to do something for these people. You know, James Homan's on the line. He's a reporter for The Washington Post, author of The Daily 202, and he's talking about the shock factor. That's what economists are calling this, the shock factor, folks, about job losses due to reallocation shock that won't be quickly uh, able to, to be recouped. And so it is really, really unfortunate because the way the policymakers presented this was a 15-day uh hiatus, so to speak, to, to, to flatten the curve. And now it's turning into a much longer type of a recovery. From a policy standpoint, James Homan, that would, and I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm curious if you're hearing this, because in, in the conversations that I've had uh, and reporting that I've done here in the Beltway, many think tanks on both sides of the aisle are trying to figure out precisely what you just raised. How do we communicate to the how do we communicate to those folks who, quite frankly, their jobs might not be coming back? Right. And, and it becomes, well, from a policy standpoint, it becomes arguments about insurance, arguments about uh, unemployment insurance. How do you back that up? How do you, how do you provide unemployment benefits for folks in the gig economy and, and the like? No? 
Yeah, and that's and, and how do you? I mean, there is a lot of trepidation now on the right among you know my folks I talk to on the Hill who don't want to spend another trillion dollars or two trillion dollars, you know, who feel like kind of stomach turning when they start to realize within that CARES Act that they voted for. And, and you're going to start to see more and more stories about waste, fraud, and abuse, and people getting loans who shouldn't have gotten loans, and people taking advantage of the system. And so that's going to create a lot of pressure on the right not to do another massive package. But at the same time, again, to show these independent voters who are sort of moving away uh, from Republicans in the polls right now, and, and, and will probably come home if these Republican senators can convince them that they actually are fighting for them. And so I think it, it's it's politically imperative not to get bogged down in arcane debates, but to show that, you know, that they care, uh, to show some empathy. And, uh, and, and, and not just empathy. I hate to interrupt. Anyone... I, I think yep. that the, the, the I, but I have to just jump in here because it's not just empathy. It's not just that authenticity. I agree with you a thousand percent. And James, you and I, we are, you know, very, we can wonk out on this and be nerds because, but from a policy standpoint, there has to be a conversation about, okay, if these jobs aren't going to come back for a year, what are you going to do for the millions of people who are out of work to train them to, to, so that they can relocate into another sector? And that's the smart policy conversation that, uh, mm. that, you know, I think Republicans and Democrats need to start having because it's, it's, it's less even about, you know, just speaking, oh, we, we feel so badly for you. And it's more, this economy is going to be rebuilt, but we need to make sure the workforce is rebuilt for it. Because here's the reality. And this, you know, we started with optimism, but now we'll, do, we'll give a dose of reality. Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying before the Senate Banking Committee earlier today said, quote, if not contained and reversed, the downturn could further widen gaps in economic well-being that the long expansion had made some progress in closing, end quote. Meaning this income inequality could only get worse if this recovery is only beneficial for some. Right, James? And you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of show votes on Capitol Hill because we have divided government. So you'll see House Democrats passing measures you know, that are, that are kind of very generous that they know aren't going to pass related to unemployment insurance and the like. And then uh, you're going to see, you know, the president wants to have capital gains tax holidays and, and do various things that, uh, you know, w- wouldn't necessarily help yeah. with inequality. And so you're going to have the Senate passing its own package and the House passing its package. And yeah. they'll both be trying to convey that they're doing something. The question is whether they'll be able to get past that and actually get something done. And frankly, if we're being realistic, I'm not sure that, that right now there's yeah. pressure to bring the two sides together. James Homan of The Daily 202 and The Washington Post. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Breaking news. Breaking news. Headline crossing the Bloomberg Terminal right now. The Biden campaign has called President Trump's executive order insufficient insufficient on policing reform. President Trump earlier today, having announced a uh, policing reform executive order and essentially what he has said, well, in his words, reducing crime that laid bare the balance, the Trump uh, he's essentially calling for more, for more law and order and, and, and for there to be more uh, education vouchers uh, for individuals 
in order for folks to decide where they go to school. I caught up with the House Majority Whip, James Clyburn, earlier today on Bloomberg Television. I asked him if it was sufficient. Take a listen to what he said. Let me get your reaction to the president's signing of that executive order. Do you think it will make a difference and an impact on this country? No, I don't think so. Thank you so much for having me. I do believe that president's uh, intentions uh, uh, may be well found, but I don't think they go uh, quite far enough. The fact of the matter is, he says in the language, this is to incentivize uh, police uh, departments or police uh, officials to do right. I do believe we have to uh, fight off the institution uh, that's constructed, the culture that's there. And so there are a lot of things we've got to do. We've got to demilitarize uh, policing in this country. For some reason, we are now uh, uh, turning over armaments, uh, armed vehicles uh, to local police departments. They've got no use for that. It only enhances uh, this culture that's eaten away right. uh, at policing in this country. We've got to do something about these uh, inhuman methods that are being used, choke holds, a knee to the neck. None of that is in the police training, but it's developed in the police culture. So if well, we are going to attack that, yes. Well, Congressman, let me, let me follow up on that, because you said we got to demilitarize the police. That's different than saying defund the police. What do you say to folks and Republicans and independents, and as well as Democrats, who are on board with racial equality, but they get very wary and they have safety concerns when they hear things like defund the police? I say that that is a term that is a good soundbite. It may make a few people feel good, but it doesn't do anything to make any headway. Sound bites will get you a lot of headlines, but they don't make much headway. So I do believe we got to demilitarize, we got to restructure, we got to reform. People get a little frightened when you start talking about defunding uh, police. So let's not play their game. Let's not give anybody any cover. And that's all Trump is looking for, cover. He keeps talking about uh, this issue using that word or something similar. That's not what we, they are talking about. The problem is when you've got to explain what you mean, you're losing the argument. In terms of reinvestment, which is something that has also come up, reinvestment on underserved communities, you are the chairman of the select subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis. And you sent a letter to top banking CEOs of Wells Fargo, Citi, uh, PNC, and also to Secretary Mnuchin. Are you concerned, sir, that the PPP loans are going to big businesses and not to Main Street? Yes, I am. And it's not just a concern. I think a lot of them admitted it. That when they first got the money, they favored their longtime customers. Many of them looked to see whether or not the ability to repay was there. I know banking. I spent four, uh, 14 years on predecessor banks to what is now Bank of America. So I know how banks operate. I was on the audit committee of the bank. I chaired the committee, reinvestment committee uh, of the bank. So I know how this goes. So I set this out because we got complaints from people that they were not being able to get business, uh, business loans for their Main Street facilities. And so that's why when we did the second tranche uh, for CARES, we mandated that money had to go to uh, these community 
financial uh, institutions, community development financial institutions, to credit unions, people who deal with small businesses uh, on a very small basis to help keep them alive. So I just want to make sure that the people who got the money were deserving and be transparent about it. Make sure it's sufficient. What should the consequences be for uh, financial institutions that aren't transparent about where this money is going or who are uh, acting improperly and not providing that liquidity uh, to, to Main Street? Well, we've got a legal staff that works on that. I'm not an attorney, and so I don't get into legal arguments. Uh, we are gathering information. I want to know whether or not you did it right. And if you did, thank you very much. Congratulations. If you didn't, the consequences, I guess the legal staff will deter, uh, help us determine what they should be. And just one final question. What, what are the prospects of there being another round of economic stimulus before the August recess or even an infrastructure package uh, in the fall? I think both are possible. I think both are needed. We need to pass uh, the HEROES Act. The House has already passed it. It's a $3 trillion bill. One trillion dollar going to state and local governments. We ought to pass that. We need to do uh, a broad infrastructure uh, bill, not just for roads and bridges and water and sewage, uh, but for broadband deployment. We need to have housing uh, as an infrastructure issue. We need to have community health care centers as an infrastructure issue. These things will not only provide jobs, but provide a tremendous service yeah. that will do good throughout the neighborhoods. That was Congressman James Clyburn. He is a Democrat from South Carolina. He is the House Majority Whip and, of course, the subcommittee chairman on the coronavirus uh, committee that is select committee that's looking into the transparency. Uh, on a host of different topics, you can check out that full interview on BloombergTV.com and uh, for, the, for the full for the full interview. All right, coming up next, we're going to pivot to geopolitics. John Cittellini is going to join us. We're going to talk about China and the India skirmish that has happened. I mean, I think this has been really underreported. John will break it down for us. He, of course, is an advisor to the State Department. So we're going to check in with him. But this story, hey, Tom Keene, are you listening? Tom Keene, are you listening? The U.S. sues to block ex-national security advisor John Bolton's book. Tom was grilling me on surveillance earlier today about this. The U.S. government sued to block the publication of a tell-all book by John Bolton. Donald Trump's former national security advisor who claims the president was willing to endanger the nation in order to be reelected. Will the book come out? Will it not come out? Can we get our hands on it? More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. This is a crazy story. Matt Shirley, who is uh, filling in on the producing desk for us, while the indefatigable Christine Barada gets uh, a couple days of vacay. This is a crazy story that Shirley just, just flagged for me from the Department of Justice. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Former Bumblebee CEO sentenced to prison for fixing prices of canned tuna. Tuna. Christopher Lishewski. He's the former CEO and president of Bumblebee Foods, LLC, was sentenced to serve 40 months in jail and pay $100,000 criminal fine for his leadership role in a three-year antitrust conspiracy to fix the prices of canned tuna. Do you believe? Tuna. John Sinalides is on the line. John, you can't even have tuna anymore. Without it being an antitrust violation, and I mean, who fixed the price of tuna, John? Demand justice. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you're speechless. <laughs> Kudos to Matt for finding this one. <laughs> oh, he's in our video Even chat. I'm he's, astonished. He's, uh, I think he's a little flabbergasted that I actually. Uh, <laughs> Took him up on that. John's the geopolitical strategist, the trilogy advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State <laughs> Department. And I guess our tuna chief uh, correspondent. Okay, John, this is an, a, a switching gears entirely. <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Yeah, you might say so. <laughs> there, I mean, in, on a very serious note, there was a skirmish along the India-China border. What do we know and why is this so incredibly volatile? Well, let's let's make sure we put this in the proper context, Kevin. Uh, we're working with still imperfect information because we're dealing, I think it's beyond skirmishes now, there are dozens of Indian and Chinese soldiers who've been killed on the highest mountain range in the world. Very, very dangerous area. And the two countries, the two colossus countries of the Asian continent share a 2,100-mile border that has never been fully demarcated. And remember also, China and India are nuclear-armed powers. So it's very important that we try to encourage a de-escalation of this situation as quickly as possible. But what's happened essentially is that China and India have had these disputes for decades, Kevin. And remember, these two countries went to war for one month in 1962. Right? That was only 60 years ago, just under 60 years. And they have these uh, these disputed territorial claims on each other's border. And then you have this small country of Nepal in between. And these three countries have all been making claims, China and Nepal against India, India against China and Nepal. Then you've got the nationalism inside of China and India. And you've had some road construction by India uh, in recent months. They rejiggered the maps of Kashmir, that famous Led Zeppelin song from Physical Graffiti in 1975. It's actually a very dangerous part of the world, Kevin. And so you have nuclear armed powers whose soldiers are now killing each other in the Himalayan plateaus and mountain ranges. And there's really no way for this to de-escalate unless the two powers, Beijing and New Delhi, decide they have to find a framework for negotiating a standoff here and some drawback to not peace, 
but at least an end to hostilities. So, I mean, it, it, it's it's a very, very volatile region, but this caught everyone by surprise. What are they fighting over? Well, let's just say, first of all, it shouldn't have caught too many people by surprise. The skirmishes actually began in May. So this has been going on for about five or six weeks. And you may recall, the end of May, President Trump tweeted that he would be happy to mediate between China and India. Well, I don't yeah. think the Chinese would trust him very much. But I think much. a lot of people are coming into this new. So so, so what, what are they fighting over? I mean, yes, there's the historic... There's the historic of the 1960s. But, but currently, what are they fighting over? It's the same story they've been fighting over for decades. They're fighting over territory. And territory, Kevin, is what sovereign countries go to war over. So it, it's very, very dangerous. They had pretty much a peaceful arrangement. They've had a number of minor skirmishes and scuffles with soldiers beating each other up or using sticks on each other. And there have been a number of skirmishes recently, but this has now escalated significantly since November of last year, ever since India unilaterally changed Kashmir's borders, angering China and Nepal. But I think there's something else that's happening here also. A lot of infrastructure construction that's challenging each country's territorial claims. But I think what's happening in China is very interesting, Kevin. COVID. The world has been distracted uh, by COVID, by dealing with lockdowns in their respective countries. Also, many countries are very angry at China for the way they deceptively uh, unleashed this virus on the world back in January and February. And I think also China is very threatened by India, maybe looking to play above its weight by partnering with the United States to contain Chinese strategic ambitions in China, in the Indian Ocean. And so this is China trying to cut India down to size. So, I mean, it's, it's, is this... I hear you. So is China feeling emboldened right now? I mean, very much that... so. But see, They're this is where I'm very Kong, confused. This the... is where I'm very confused. Why are they well, feeling look... emboldened? Is it because Europe has not, you know, adequately put pressure on them? I mean, why is why is the Communist Party of China, which lack transparency, I, I mean, by every account, from according to Republicans and Democrats, the intelligence community, Europe has raised questions. I mean, why are they feeling emboldened at a moment when they've, you know, when the international community is raising these questions? I don't know that China feels any pain from Europe in any way. I mean, no, these I are things they that they're, they're able to handle in, in the, the fields of media and legal intervention and the like. No, what's happening here is a very muscular, belligerent Chinese strategy that really, you know, they, they've sort of, you know, taken the, the, the covers off and become much more emboldened in Hong Kong with the imposition of the national security law. They're openly threatening Taiwan ever since Taiwan's performance in dealing with COVID has really made it a jewel of, of the Western Pacific and a model of what a more democratic free market China could eventually be. Uh, they sank a Vietnamese ship in the South China Sea just several months ago. They continue to threaten the United States Navy operating in international waters in the South China Sea. And now you see this emboldened activity uh, on the Indian border. There was nothing going on before May of any serious consequence to China. And this could also be, Kevin, tied to what's happening inside of China. Now that they've got their third outbreak in Beijing the last several days, and it's a good way to build up nationalist sentiment in support of the Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, while the Chinese people are very much concerned about what could be a serious outbreak in the capital. So you've got a virus, and you've got now Xi Jinping. Now, 
Wow, remarkable. Do you think this is going to further escalate? Do you think this could lead to all-out war? I don't believe it's going to lead to all-out war because I think the the leaders on both sides recognize it would be catastrophic for both, especially because once it goes into an all-out shooting war, there's no way to control a conventional war not becoming nuclear, and that would be absolutely catastrophic for those countries and really for the world economy. But I think what you're going to see is, is continued tensions for quite some time because neither Xi Jinping nor Narendra Modi, the prime minister of India, can be seen as backing down while the other countries their great Asian rival, are seen as occupying territory claimed by the respective country. So they have to find a cooler way to de-escalate, and this may actually escalate first in order to put pressure on each side to finally pull back and de-escalate. John Sidalides, breaking all of that down for us. Wow. A fascinating, fascinating, fascinating story. He's a geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and the diplomacy consultant to the State Department. Coming up, we pivot to 2020. Eli Yokely, political reporter for the Morning Consult, is going to join us on the race for the White House and Michigan in particular. Why is Joe Biden leading by double digits in the battleground state? You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, and you are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Kevin Cirilli, I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for uh, Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk about 2020, shall we? Actually, let, before we talk about 2020, let's do some more optimism. We got to end. We got to last. You know, last segment. We got to end with some optimism. Let's read from the Associated Press. American shoppers ramped up their spending on store purchases by a record 17.7 percent from April to May. Delivering a dose of energy for retailers that have been reeling since the coronavirus shut down businesses, flattened the economy. All right, we know it, AP, and paralyzed consumers during the previous two months. Uh, This is good news. It's optimism. Eli Oakley is a political reporter for The Morning Consult. Eli, tell me something optimistic. Well, you know, I have something ver- the opposite for you, Kevin. Voter optimism. You know, wow, really what a downer. Right what a downer yeah. on a Tuesday. <laughs> My, I'm an optimist. Go ahead. <laughs> well, we've tracked some of the In worst. In a town like optimism. this. <laughs> we, we, we've tracked some of the worst voter optimism we've seen since we started doing this at the beginning of Trump's presidency in the last week. Um, and so it's good to hear consumers are doing okay, but voters aren't with them. All right. So where do we stand? What's, give us the lay of the lamb. What are the polls? Give us the lay of the lamb. Biden's up. Biden's up. Biden's up uh, bigger than he's been all year by nine points in our tracking. Uh, we're seeing that in some of the other uh, polls that are popping up across the country throughout this Black Lives Matter protest moment um, that's kind of coupled with the coronavirus moment. Um, in our tracking, we've seen that Biden's improvements have been driven by younger voters and progressive voters, these guys who um, were big supporters of Bernie Sanders and have been a bit wary of him, seem to be coming home a bit. Um, and also young white people are really uh, coming back behind him as all these things kind of stack on top of each other. You know, Donald Trump's getting his worst marks we've seen on coronavirus, and Joe Biden's getting much better marks for his handling of, of some of these protests. So uh, this is not a great time to be Donald Trump. Okay, so yesterday before the show, I checked in with uh, Matt Brooks. He's the executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition. We were just catching up, and he was saying 
that you got to look at the not the top line numbers, but the bottom or the cross tabs, because from his perspective, if you look at things, especially for suburban voters, if you look at things pertaining to defunding the police, that's incredibly unpopular. Even James Clyburn on this program said he doesn't think defunding the police is something that should be uh, openly discussed in the sense that uh, it's he doesn't like that the way that that's framed. Uh, so Republicans feel confident on the issue of defunding the police. And they've got this broader issue, Eli Yokely, political reporter for the Morning Consult. They also feel that some of the president's actions as it relates to the police are six months or four months from now going to be viewed very differently. Is there any evidence to suggest that Republicans should be optimistic about any of this playing out in a couple of months differently? Yeah. I mean, defund the police as a slogan is not a popular slogan. Uh, but as a movement, I mean, we're seeing um, and some some of the indications we're getting are um, some of the ideas behind it are sort of popular, or at least they split the suburbs, maybe. Um, look, uh, Donald Trump, throughout his presidency, has wanted to make the uh, the political terrain about energizing his base. We've seen it with China during coronavirus. We saw it with immigration earlier on in his presidency. I think we're seeing the same thing with his focus on, on polling. And by the way, I mean, he embraced some of the things that some of the black activists and, and Barack Obama have been pushing for um, to a lesser extent um, in his uh, executive orders today. Um, so clearly he's thinking a little bigger than just his base. But but clearly, I mean, he's leaning into this to fund the base, uh, to fund the police um, talk just to energize his supporters and perhaps wedge Joe Biden. Although we've seen some uh, prominent black leaders, including the head of the C- uh, Congressional Black Caucus, say that she thinks it's not a very good slogan as uh, Democrats on Capitol Hill kind of try to push their own thing. So uh, I think well, why Democrats- wasn't this I mean, because he's going to get up on a debate stage yeah. against Biden. He's going to say, why didn't you pass this? You had eight years. You had eight years to pass this. I mean, and, and respectfully, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a divided Congress. It's an incredibly polarized time. He's a Republican in the White House. And he's the one that's going to sign into law the ban on the chokehold. Why, why wasn't this passed? <laughs> During that, that eight-year window, you know that's the argument yeah. Republicans are going to say. Yeah, well, I'm certainly not here to speak for Joe Biden's campaign. No, I know, no, I know. I'm not, but that's I mean, our, but yeah, that's our friend Kevin Welling's job. Um, <laughs> but, but Kevin, what I, what I would, <laughs> but what I would watch say him be listening be, and call in. We've got like three minutes, Kev. Go ahead. <laughs> but what I would say would be that I mean, these, these are policies that Barack Obama. Um, got a task force together to put into a big document at the end of his presidency after Ferguson that had been sitting there on the shelf for a while. Uh, Joe Biden was clearly involved in that. Um, and and Joe, what Donald Trump's doing is by executive action. So some of this is going to take um, action from Congress. And whether or not Congress can get on the same page as the president in an election year on this issue is still yet to be seen. Uh, I think, okay, and this is where I'm going to interrupt, because... This election is going to be decided in the suburbs of Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, and those two states in particular. Uh, Biden yeah. has a double-digit lead in Michigan right now, and 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 whatnot. I'm. I, you, you, we all got to get out of our ideological bubbles. We all got to get out of our ideological clickbait bubbles that we all click on, and we got to think: How are those voters who? Who live out in different parts of the country? How are they going to interpret a debate when? Donald Trump is on the stage, President Trump is on the stage next to the former vice president and turns at him and says, why didn't you get this done? And that moment, 
like it or lump it, how that plays with independent voters that Eli Yochley knows very well from all the polling that Morning Consult does, that's going to decide the election. I, but, I, I really believe it. it. I, I really I mean, don't. What, what I would say is it's not the only thing. I mean, we thought yeah. a month ago that all we'd be talking about this year is coronavirus. We thought four months or five months ago that all we'd be talking about this year is impeachment. I think Stu Rothenberg had a great column at Roll Call today just noting the fact that, like, we could be talking about anything uh, six months from now. I mean, that's just well, the you nature brought of what You brought yeah. up the, the, the coronavirus. How does the president poll on the economy? He's doing okay on the economy. The economy is his strong point, and if this election is fought on the economy, that's good for him. Uh, the bigger question is uh, is whether the economy will still be uh, strengthening uh, by November. I mean, we're seeing across the map incre- increases in coronavirus cases. Voters are giving Trump his worst ratings on his handling of coronavirus uh, since we started tracking it earlier this year. Um, they're clearly separating that from his, his economic performance. But, you know, if we've got a surge in the fall, um, you know, that's not, a, that's not a good thing for the president. So there's a lot of open questions still about what we're facing on I think that's really, I think that's the biggest unknown because I actually, if you look at the polls, uh, independents are siding with Trump in terms of the economy. They've got questions for Biden. And, and Trump has framed this as, I want to reopen. Biden wants to keep it shut down. So that's that. But to your point, should there be a resurgence and China and, you know, with China on lockdown again or parts of Beijing on lockdown again, uh, who knows? Uh, but the science really could impact the reality in terms of whether or not there's going to be another, hopefully not, yeah. another uh, strain well, of this thing. And we've got like a minute left, but go ahead. I'll just say in the middle of the country, this is popping up. I, mean, I, I read the Joplin Globe every morning, first thing back home. And since reopening on May 1, the number of cases in that southwest Missouri town have doubled uh, in the last few weeks. The governor, who's facing a pretty uh, well-funded opponent and maybe a tough race, probably not, um, if he's pushing for a reopen, even some of these smaller conservative towns are like, wait a minute, let's slow down a little bit. So I think there's a lot going to be at play there in the next few months on this. That's why, you know, what, what's the hometown paper called? The Joplin Globe. Subscribe, Jop, man. The Joplin Globe. I, I read the Delco Times every morning. I Every single morning. Um, so, yeah. Eli, you know, we're all homesick especially these days. That's right. Eli Yokely, he is a political reporter for The Morning Consult. He does great stuff over at The Morning Consult. Go check out his reporting. He like explains the numbers in a way that I don't think other pollsters do. So thanks to Eli for coming on and talking about that. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we're going to check in with Tim Mertzall. He is the communications director for the president's re-election campaign and marshall blackburn will be on thursday i'm kevin cerilli chief washington correspondent for bloomberg television and bloomberg radio and thanks for listening to bloomberg 99.1 to address our new climate reality the world needs radical solutions collaborate for a greener future at the bloomberg green festival a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.